we're starting a new series. It's just three weeks. Uh, it's called Connect. And here's, here's the, the, how, the, how the series came to be. Um, this fall, or this summer, when the, the elders and deacons and staff members that were available, we had a retreat, uh, Friday night and a Saturday, and we were talking through and wondering about what the goal, what, what, what short-term goal God might have for this church. Coming out of the whole, um, all the lockdowns and all that stuff, I know that there's still some, some, some concern about that. We get that. But we had put on hold um, our annual yearly, I know that's a, that's a the, I just said the same thing twice, annual yearly. We put on hold during the COVID thing what our, what our next what our next year's uh, goal should be. So we got back to it this summer, and one of the things you sit around in a room and, and people throw up, throw, throw out. <laughs> it's going great today. Uh, people throw out the different things they think God might be saying to us. And one thing that, that there, there were lots of, I mean, dozens, if not, if not more than that, of ideas, um, but all of them had something in common. And they all had to do with the need for us to connect. And you think about it, after the year, that the, at that point, it was just over a year, about 14 months that we had had, um, of separation, of isolation, of, of not sure where you can go, if you should go, not sure what you should do, if you should do certain things. I mean, if you think back to, to April of 2020, there was, there was disagreement on whether you could take a kayak out on the lake. So with all of that stuff and all those things that we've experienced, there's been this, this sense of, not just do we want to connect with one another, but, but even should we? And so we, we have this, these, this goal came up, and uh, in two weeks it'll be announced what our goal for the, for, until sep, through September, uh, through August of next year is. Um, but rest assured, it has to do with connection. So I just started looking at the scriptures. Where does it talk about connection? And there are lots of great things, and we, most of us are very familiar with them. But there, there are three levels of connection, and you can see it in the Ten Commandments. The first three commandments are us, you, with God. It's a vertical thing, right? The, the, the next one, the fourth one, is um, Sabbath. It's us and creation. Give, you're, not, you're not as big a deal as you think you are, so the world will be just fine without you for a day, if you're good for nothing for a day. And it gives you a break from toil and labor. It gives the world a break from toil and labor. And it reminds us to trust that God is the provider. But then the last ones... From five on, so honor your father and your mother, right on through the, the, end, the end of it, it has to do with one another, how we treat one another, how we behave with, to one another. So if we just take that, we're going to take the creation piece, the, um, the, the, the fellowship or the, uh, the Sabbath piece out of it, and we're going to talk today about how does God connect with us? Is God a God who seeks us? Is God a God who pursues us? Next week, we're going to talk about how we might connect with God. And then after that, the last one, we'll talk about how we might connect with one another and why we might connect with one another. And we're going to look at a passage that's unfamiliar if you start thinking of connection today, and it's from Hebrews chapter 4. And before we get to it, I want to pray, but I want to ask you to just do something. I'm going to ask you to think about your view of Scripture and your view of God. Because it, this, this passage, just a few verses, um, addresses both of those things. And both of those things are necessary. How we see God means it, it, it's how we connect with Him. How we see Him is how we approach Him. But the Scripture might counter that. 
It might say, ah, no, no, you got that, that idea? Yeah, sure, I understand. But that's not how God has designed it. So that's what we're going to address today. So ask yourself about your view of Scripture. Ask yourself about your view of God and how you approach God. And then let's hear from God what he says about his Scripture and about how he approaches us. And that'll set us up for next week, how we might approach him. Let's pray together. Lord, you are God and we are not. And we are so thankful. Imagine what, I can't even imagine what it would be like to to be a part of a world that we were gods over. We're so, you're so good. You're so big. You're so thoughtful and merciful. Thank you for that. We ask that you speak to us today, that you remind us about your living and active word, but you also remind us of what you did for us as you approach us, as you pursue us, as you relate to us. Because it's not that we first love you, it's that you first love us. So Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what you would have us see, hear, and receive. This is not my message for them, it's your message for us. So speak to your people as we listen to our dad, Abba, Father, God Almighty. And it's in the name of his son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So the passage is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and following, and it reads like this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So a couple of things, because there's a movement, and, it, and I just want you to know this movement about Scripture in our world today is not new. Um, I was reading just a couple of weeks ago about a response that Charles Spurgeon, I don't know if you know that name, but he's one of the great, the great preachers a century and a bit before. Um, he was part of the Baptist Union uh, in the United States, but just a great thinker, a great preacher. He was the guy that, that after every seven years, he would throw away all his sermons because they, they, they would ask him, you know, well, if I can't preach a better sermon on this passage than I did seven years ago, then I need to get out, I need to get out of this. But his, his assistant grabbed everything out of his trash can and saved it for posterity. So I used to have a whole anthology of Charles Spurgeon's sermons, and he's just a phenomenal communicator. But back in, in the 19th century, or excuse me, yeah, 19th century, the, the nope, yeah, sorry, 1800s, just go with that. There was a fall away from the view of the authority of Scripture, and they called it it wasn't the, the great backslide, but it was just, just a, a, it was a controversy that just people went, nope, we've been taking this stuff too seriously. And if you are familiar with church history in the United States, you would see that the, on the East Coast in particular, we used to see people moving toward Unitarianism. That is that God is God and Son is not God and Spirit is not God. And they would move into modalism, which the, the God shows up in certain ways at certain times. Um, and then the other side of that spectrum, the great downgrade controversy, was people starting to not just doubt the divinity of Christ, but started looking at the scriptures and saying, well, you know, this was pre-enlightenment. This is before people really knew, and therefore, um, God didn't mean that. And it's happening today. People say, well, 
the scripture is authoritative in all that it intends to teach. Okay, if God intended that it would teach this, then we need to find out what this is and then teach that. But how that's been morphed and tweaked over the years is that God didn't intend that. God didn't mean this when he talked about this. God didn't mean this when he talked about this. And Paul got that wrong. I've heard pastors say that an apostle got something wrong. Right here is one of the, one of the verses that, that are used to say that, see, God's word changes. God does not, but God's word does. And they read this passage and they say, for the word of God is living and active, sharp. And then they lead out the other part, sharper than any double-edged sword. It will divide spirit and soul and, and, and cut through bone and marrow. They say that God's word changes. No, it's living, but it doesn't change. God's word doesn't change, but what it does do is it changes you. It changes me. It changes us. So it is alive because it still changes God's people the way Scripture changed God's people 2,000 years ago, the way Scripture changed God's people 400 years ago, the way God, the, God's Word changed people 200 years ago. Last week and today is still the same. Now, our circumstances have changed, but the Scripture will change us to be, to, to do, to, it will call us to repent, it will change, it will transform our minds so that we stop doing what's natural to us and we start doing what's natural to God. And what is natural to God? You ever heard of the mercy seat? In the temple, the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, on top of the Ark of the Covenant is what's known as the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest one man was chosen, and he only did it for one year because the preparation work was so hard and it took so long and the purification rituals were so exhaustive that, that, only, that a man could only go through it one time. And so that on, I believe it's on uh, the Day of Atonement, um, every year, Yom Kippur, when, when they would come in, the, all the priests, they would have this great big worship thing, and then the high priest, would tie, a, a rope would be tied around him. After he'd gone through a year of purification, a rope would be tied around him, and he would take the offering of God's people into, through that big, thick curtain that tore when Jesus cried out that it is finished, but he would go through that curtain and offer an offering on the mercy seat of God. And if he had been pure enough, if he had been cleansed enough over the last year, he wouldn't die. But the reason they tore a cork, uh, tied a cord around him is so that if he did die, no one could go in after him. They could pull him out and go through the burial ritual. And then one time a year, when that priest would come out, the high priest would come out after offering that offering on the mercy seat of God, pleading for the atonement, pleading for the forgiveness of God's people, he would come out and one time a year, he would yell out the name of God. The only time that any Jewish person was allowed to utter the name of God was after God had received the, the offering on the mercy seat of God on behalf of the sins of the people. And he would come out and he would, he would stand in front of everyone and say, Yahweh! Why do I tell you that? 
Well, number one, we need to understand the character of God. And number two, something changed with that whole approach, that high priest going in and offering sacrifices and offerings to God on the mercy seat of God. But remember, it's the mercy seat. It's where God's people would approach him and beg for mercy, ask for mercy. Don't give us what we have coming to us. In fact, the whole law of God is set up. The whole Old Testament sacrificial rituals are set up for the people of God to acknowledge how they messed it up. Because the living, of, the living word of God is active, and it will pierce joint and marrow. It will continue to show the people how we fall short, to show our need for atonement, our need for redemption, our need for grace, our need for mercy. And once a year, they were reminded that God is still God. They were reminded all year long, but then he has a name and it's a personal relationship. You remember when, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, the bush that would not be consumed. And, and he said, go rescue my people. And, and Moses said, well, who, who should I, who should I tell him send me? And he uttered his name. I am. It's an amazing thing that a deity the deity, the king of kings, the king of the universe, uh, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu, bless you, Lord our God. Every Jewish ritual starts with that, those words. And then the next words are, and I can't pronounce them in Hebrew, king of the universe. Bless you, Lord our God, king of the universe. The king of the universe took audience with a man, Moses. And he gave him his name. Think about this for a moment. How important is your name? It is one of the few things that someone can whisper in your ear when you're in REM sleep, when your eyes are going back and forth and you're dreaming. Someone could walk up in your room and just go, if you're me, Trent. Nothing will pull me out of REM sleep as quickly as my name being uttered. Because it is my identity. It is who I am. And it means thirsty. Trent means thirsty. It also means the end. So that, the, the meaning of my name is not my identity, but my name is tied to my identity, as is God's. It's one of the reasons that God, when he would rename someone, when he took Jacob and made him Israel, when he, when he took Saul and made him Paul, when, when over and over and over again, God renames a person so that their name reflects their character. And God, when he gave his name, he is saying, I am not I was, not I will be, but I am. I am always present, not only in the, in, the, in the sense of time, but also in the sense of presence. Why tell you this about the high priest? Why tell you this about the mercy seat? Why talk about the character and the name of God and that it was only uttered once a year? Because of what comes next in this passage. Therefore, since we have a high priest, talking about Jesus here, because we have a high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is an unbelievably well-articulated explanation of why the incarnation. In the beginning was 
God. And the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God in the beginning. 13 verses later, and the word became flesh and moved in next door, pitched his tent next door. The word became flesh. The word became flesh, the word of God, not just the scriptures, but the second member of the Trinity, he became flesh. He did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but took on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. We know this story, but are we unmoved by it? Because God pursues his people, not just so you will change your behavior, but so that you will know God. Jesus says in John 14, 15, and this is everlasting life, that they you and I, know you, the one true God. And the word for know there is the same kind of word for knowledge that is used to describe a husband and a wife together. It is as intimate and as unshakable and as important as just about anything else. God connects with us. God pursues us. God seeks you. And in Romans, you'll read that no one is good and no one seeks God. So if you, if, if you want to counter this, find the scripture that tells you that God waits for you to come to him. There are times when wait patiently for the Lord, but the whole relationship starts with God coming to us. And when Jesus cried out, it is finished, and we're told in the Gospels that that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from everything else on the planet, it tore in two. The mercy seat of God is now available to all. And not just available to all, but available to all, all the time. We don't have a high priest that doesn't get it. Jesus got sick. He got tired. He was a human, fully God, fully divine. And when he was walking this earth, he got frustrated. He was betrayed. He was tempted by the devil himself to take a shortcut on what God the Father had sent him to do. And the only difference between Jesus and you, Jesus and me, Jesus and us, is that he never succumbed to the temptation but he does know what it's like. He does know what it's like, to, the, the, the natural human instinct to when someone snaps at you to snap back, when someone disagrees with you to prove them wrong, when someone, when someone does harm to you to do harm in return, to turn, not to turn the other cheek, but to bludgeon somebody because they wanted to bludgeon you. That is what comes natural to us, but it is not what comes natural to God. If it did come natural to God, then it wouldn't be called the mercy seat. It would be called the vengeance seat. It would be where God brings his wrath on humanity. The scripture will continue to change you. It will continue to hurt you in a glorious way. It will, it will destroy your life, but it'll be for the glory of God in a glorious way. You will be glad that God pierced your heart, that, that, he, that he separated bone from marrow. You will be, when it's over, you will cry out and say, yes, Lord, thank you. It's going to be hard. But you have a God who 
who holds you close. And when you come, think about it, dads. Think about it for a moment. When your kids were little and they were upset. I, my son one time, he, 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 they were asked to self-correct a test. And when he self-corrected the test, he changed some answers. And he sat in a worship service on spring, at Easter, and he got convicted. And that night, late at night, he came down to the basement. We had a two-story house. He came down to the basement, and he had to confess. Because God convicted him. And he had to go, took him to his principal the next morning, and he sat in his principal's office, and he told him what he did. Think he wanted to do that? And was I right? I don't know if I was right in having him do that, but I always want people to give an account. Tells us right here. So that we might find, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. On one side it says, to whom you will give an account. On the other side it says, mercy and grace for you in your time of need. Fathers, when your sons or daughters came to you when they were young and they had done wrong, if you were angry and you behaved angrily, you feel good about what you handed out to them for punishment? Sometimes. But if you were hurt but respectful and you doled out the consequence, wasn't there mercy in it? Why? Because you love them. There's got to be consequence for behavior. There's got to be punishment for wrongdoing. I'm not saying any of that. That, 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 that any of that isn't true. But is it because of your love for your child or your grandchild when you have to discipline? There's mercy in it. The God of the universe convicts. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to which we give, we must give account. All will be judged. But we have a high priest that gets it. We have a God that loves a God that wants to give you what you do not deserve, a God that wants to not give you what you do deserve. And he wants to use the scriptures, the word of God, to transform us. And it will be hard because we usually come reluctantly. He wants to make it so that we start doing what comes supernaturally, natural to God, but supernaturally to us, so that we might offer mercy and grace as we receive it. God connects with us through mercy. God seeks us to offer grace. What transforms us, according to the scripture, is God's kindness. 
Now, if I were a God of a world like we live in right now, I don't think I would want to have anything to do with the majority of our world. But God died for it. God pursues it. And God wants to transform it. Not just for his sake, but for ours. The God of the universe, the king of the universe, is our priest. He is our mercy seat. He is our understanding of God. Hebrews starts off with saying that Jesus is the exact representation of God's glory. And it used to be that the people would grab someone to intercede for them, the high priest, and beg God all week long that when he takes that sacrifice and puts it on the mercy seat, that God will show mercy. Once a year. And so they devoted a week to preparing. You know how often that's available to you? Now, 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 now. Every time you can say now, for the rest of eternity, it's available to you. You see that? That God loved you so much that he was willing to offer mercy all the time. And it tells us here that we can, with confidence, we can approach the throne of God. It's not like a spoiled child, but you can, you don't have to clean up before you go to take your bath. Going to him will wash you clean over and over and over again. And going to him will change your heart over and over and over again. Going to him is only possible because he came to you. God wants fellowship with each one of you and with us corporately because God pursues, God connects, and God seeks. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about what our, how, how we respond to that initiation that God seeks us. In just a moment, you're going to celebrate communion. It is another way that God seeks you. It is another way that God connects with you. It's him that offered himself for you. So remember what the scriptures say. It doesn't change, but it will always change you. And remember your understanding of who Jesus is, that he is God in pursuit of you. And here is a way that he chooses to give you mercy and grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are mindful of us, that we even matter to you. And thank you that you're in relationship with us that you initiated, that you used to come and walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, that you were the one who gave your name to Moses, that you were the one who became flesh and moved in next door, that you were the one who did not hold on to everything that, is the God, that, that it means to be divine while you were walking on this earth. You became one of us so that we know that you know us. Help us. Know you better because you know us better than anything else. Bless us as we do our best to bless you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.